Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. We are back here in the studio today, Caleb, Melissa, and I, Bridger, uh, to discuss another article in our series um, on shame and the brain. Yes. And today we're covering an article uh, from authors Terezi and Shook uh, from 2020 called On the Origin of Shame, Does Shame Emerge from an Evolved Disease Avoidance Architecture? Oh, Disease avoidance architecture. Very mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. This is another paper that I reviewed in my first year of do- my doctoral program, uh, where I was building my theory on the disintegration of mind, which I'm very excited about still. Mm-hmm. And we're going to continue using mm-hmm. because it's so good. Uh, very biased. But anyway, <laughs> uh, before we jump into that article, we wanted to um, again talk about ways that we can continue to interact with our listeners because we love to do that. And we love to build community around the resources that we're discussing and just to broaden and open the access to the conversation um, past just the three of us to others that might be interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the ways that we have available to do that is through our Patreon. Um, so you can just go to patreon.com backslash beyond healing center and you will find our uh, Patreon with various levels where you can get involved and uh, through that uh, gain various levels of access to uh, us as the podcasters and mm-hmm. to uh, just the Beyond Healing Center community where we have tons of different resources available as well as opportunities to connect with other patrons and uh, even do like consultation, yeah. um, which is really fun. And we talk a lot about our model of case conceptualization, uh, somatic integration and processing. Uh, we also have various trainings available for that. Um, but yeah, we'd love to see you guys, see you guys come out. Yeah. Mel, did you want to say something about Oh yeah, iTunes? the other thing. Um, so you know, this is a newish podcast for us. We have several others, but um, EBT, Evidence-Based Therapist, is in its infancy as far as our podcasts go. Um, And something that you guys can do that's really helpful to us to reach a wider audience and get more people connected with this as a resource is to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Um, So if you hate us, ignore this. Uh, (laughs) But if you love us, uh, go to iTunes and give us a five-star review and talk about how great we are. And uh, if you send us a screenshot of you doing that, we will send you a sticker because we've got stickers heck yeah 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 have you seen the anonymous kayla boston um, <laughs> reviewing this podcast i just want the sticker i just want the sticker Caleb, i'll give you a sticker for free okay <laughs> but i'd love Can you to tell him I'm, I'm a dismissive oriented attachment style i'm gonna back it. into that one yeah yeah it's yeah it's okay. you can't directly ask for what you want no yeah. so you're just gonna back your I'll way into it. get the yeah. sticker yeah yeah Hmm. I'll get you a sticker, I promise. Yeah. But yeah. the stickers are cool. They and that's are. awesome. They I'm are. glad you guys are doing that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so if you guys would give us a rating and a review, that would be super helpful to us and to other listeners being able to connect with us. Yes. So without further ado, a shame. Shame More about and disgust. Shame. shame and disgust. On yeah. the origin yeah. of shame. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which um, I feel like we could just talk about the title for a while. <laughs> but We could. Um, I think we... We talk, every article is so different just because the authors have a different intention in um, sort of just laying out their uh, kind of the building up of their 
paper, but then also the editors of the journal have a different agenda. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's some of the ways that articles can come across and read differently. Um, a lot of my students are like, why don't articles all look the same? Like, why are we even learning formatting if articles are just going to look different? And there's lots of reasons into that, mm-hmm. but we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, I nerd out pretty hard on that. But yeah, we'll skip that for today. Dang it. Love you, babe. Dang it. <laughs> um, but this article um, is uh, talking about the relationship between and perhaps even the ordered relationship mm. between shame and disgust mm-hmm. and what role as in what social utility, what social function they serve in our modern uh, society as well as in our past uh, evolutionarily. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's relevant to say from the very beginning when they're talking about the origin of shame, they're speaking of the neuroanatomical origins and the neurobiological origins. Mm-hmm. So not the sociocultural origins, etc. Now, those two things clearly influence each other mm-hmm. a lot, which is kind of a theme that we're investigating together overall. Yes. Um, but this article specifically spends a lot of time looking at the neuroarchitecture mm-hmm. and the actual brain regions that are involved in both disgust and shame yes Mm -hmm. yeah and how those have evolved as adaptive Mm -hmm. responses to social stimuli Mm. and and environmental stimuli yes and this reminds me of kind of last week one of the things that we we hinted at this episode or this article a lot because we found the the last article somewhat like leading us into okay so we're understanding that shame has an adaptive function. Yeah. So we need to maybe do some more research and talk a little bit more about what does that look like? What does that mm-hmm. mean? Mm-hmm. And what could be the adaptability of shame and not putting it in the binary of maladaptive adaptive. Right. Yeah. And kind of recognizing, okay, there's, this is both adaptive and maladaptive, but how does this come about? Mm-hmm. Yes. How does it come about? And in the title of this article, it's assuming uh, that the reader kind of knows uh, some of the association between shame and disgust. And so before we jump in, uh, just to show you where the article is going, it has been uh, discovered in various other uh, neuroscience research that disgust um, may be and has good evidence to be uh, illustrated as such that it might be an earlier, evolutionarily earlier um adaptation and structural organization of shame that shame emerges from what Mm -hmm. our biology our mammalian system uh previously utilized as disgust Mm -hmm. and so that's what we're going to discuss in this (laughs) podcast that's going to be a tricky articulation all evening discuss disgust yeah hang in in there with us guys (laughs) and i would love for even just you as the listeners to think about what do you feel in hearing that disgust and shame have been uh, related mm-hmm. in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, even just what your body feels when you hear the word disgust mm-hmm. or disgusting. Mm-hmm. Where does that send your mind? Mm-hmm. And does anybody um, immediately go to a correlation or a question around where does guilt fit into the picture? Yeah, that's a great the, question. Yeah, and that's something that the article contended with. Yeah. Anytime you talk about shame, people think about it. Be talking about guilt. Yeah, yeah, and they they controlled for that in the process and looked at that. So we'll talk about what that looked like. But last week we spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between um, guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And so this Mm -hmm. week we're talking about the relationship between disgust and shame. But we're going to harken back to oh yeah, 
guilt is still a piece of this mm-hmm. pie as far as the way that we culturally understand the experience of shame. But maybe neuroanatomically, they don't have very much in common, it turns out, which mm-hmm. is interesting. It is interesting. A little yeah. foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing. Yeah. And they do find like that where there is uh, increased shame, there is increased guilt. Right. But to, to go back to last week's article of there's a difference between shame-free guilt and guilt-free shame mm-hmm. and how the two interact there. You're more right. prone to feel guilt when you have shame, but you're less prone to feel shame, shame. when you just feel guilt. Right. Yes. And I feel that even just an easy way in, and this kind of gets us into the meat of the article, um, one of the easy ways to look at the differences between shame and guilt is the object um, that is the focus of right. the scrutiny in question or the, yeah, what's in question for uh, guilt. It is the behavior for shame. It is the self, right? It is the person. And the other major um, difference or differentiating factor is what is the action, the behavior that is created by that affect state yeah. in, in a human where guilt promotes a apology it promotes um, trying mm-hmm. to remedy the situation. Even and approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it moves us to approach, Towards. Um, you know, whoever we have wronged or whatever situation we feel like we have, you know, failed at. And we attempt to correct and repair. Whereas shame does exactly the opposite. And because of that negative self-appraisal, we move away. We go into avoidance and hiding and withdraw and self-isolation. Yeah. And it- so the behavior is opposite well yeah and it could negate um the pro-social behavior of guilt which is to apologize and repair Mm -hmm. when you start to feel guilt and then that leads into shame which you find in uh shame proneness quote unquote Mm -hmm. when somebody experiences guilt and they have a high shame proneness they're more likely to move away from Mm -hmm. as opposed to as opposed to towards which is to repair that Uh, a shame-filled person doesn't repair because they believe that they are bad Mm -hmm. and so therefore what could Mm -hmm. another want in repairing with me yeah which we we didn't really say this last week but i think it's a relevant point that shame filled guilt that Mm -hmm. shame will likely overwhelm the pro-social behavior of the guilt yes and uh, i will go yeah we didn't say it in that way but i i do think that's a relevant point that even when you're experiencing both if shame is strong enough it is very likely going to overwhelm the guilt and you're not going to go into that pro-social behavior of apologizing absolutely Mm -hmm. in in fact you could then go into attack self yes or attack other Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. anger is more associated with shame Mm -hmm. yeah it's the offspring as kurt thompson that's right yeah Mm -hmm. one of the neurobiologists on shame yeah Mm -hmm. good job i like that you guys are pairing shame with the word avoidance Mm -hmm. um and that the authors of the article, when they're looking at how um, shame and disgust are discussed, got to make sure I have that T there, yeah. disgust are uh, similar and differentiated. One of the things that they differentiate there is that um, shame is the turning of the body away mm-hmm. in an attempt to avoid, mm-hmm. whereas disgust is pushing away in an attempt to guard. Yeah. So that so disgust is a guarding action. Shame is an avoidance action. Mm-hmm. Well, and I found that I don't know if you guys you know responded to this at all, but um, you know references are important when you're reading articles like this. And one mm-hmm. of the super interesting references is that um, in the introduction of the article, they're actually referencing all the way back to Darwin. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, the primary emotions. Yeah, and looking at the primary emotions and specifically. Um, Darwin's documentation of the bodily posture 
um, represented by a specific affect state. And one of the things that sort of raised the initial question of, hey, is there a relationship between shame and disgust, was the observation that the bodily posture of both seemed identical, mm. whereas the bodily posture of guilt and shame did not look at all like each other. Yeah. And so from that, you know, observation came the question of, wait a second, is shame and disgust much more related than shame and guilt? And so it, I just found that kind of fun that like, oh, they were looking all the way back at Darwin's research saying, mm -hmm. ah, the body posture is the same in these affect states, mm -hmm. which is a much stronger indication of a neuroanatomical relationship than what seems to be true on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, mm -hmm. like Darwin's ideas are very biologically grounded right. yes. in survival of the fittest yes. and natural selection. And, and the idea that humans have this emotion of disgust that is going to keep them alive mm -hmm. uh keep the keep the um, danger of infection away and so they're guarded against that but then these authors kind of take that and use this um kind of developing phrase of behavioral immune system to sort of um, yeah kind of use this as a crux to then explain how they are conceptualizing how this um, neural architecture of disgust may have evolved into shame. Shame, mm -hmm. yes, and I think, oh man. So okay. go ahead and explain down a <laughs> behavioral immune system and kind of how yeah. how it goes from disgust behavioral immune system yeah. into the more social sphere of shame okay, orientation. So, and just thinking about your um, biological immune system, what is that for? It is to fight off contamination yeah. or uh, any type of infection yeah. or virus. Contamination is such a good word. Yes, it is a visceral yes. word. You feel it, it, it is so uh, imagery-based. Infectious. Yeah, yeah. It, it invades something that was once healthy. And so when you think about a behavioral uh, immune system, you're talking about something that is going to uh, encourage avoidance of what um, could lead to contamination. Mm -hmm. um, so you're looking at um, different responses in the body that are moving you away from things that could contaminate you um, and therefore make you less desirable mm -hmm. or less um, even likely to be able to be included into a community. Mm -hmm. um, so in that way, you're going to want to uh, more, more so like conform or to go with the group norms, mm -hmm. um, be somewhat uh, easily recognized as like mm -hmm. the uh th those that you would call other members of your community yeah yeah and would you guys agree that it, it the article and the authors almost co-note this um development of as humans evolve to become more successfully guarded against disease mm. like physical infectious diseases that then what emerged yeah. is the A social shift. need yes. for understanding social contamination yes and the self-contamination as a psychological process well you know but in the article they kind of looked at that as a hypothesis but didn't actually find a whole lot of evidence to support that idea that the social contamination um, was the main driver it was really correlated with the the fear of contaminating the other um, and the infection being in the self, which we can review a little bit more of that when we get into the conclusions. Um, but that was kind of left as a question mark without anything definitive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a very difficult question 
Oh, yeah. For empirical science to inspect because you're talking about what typically anthropologists are working with, Mm -hmm. which is the social utility and evolution of shame. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think just anecdotally and intuitively, there is such support for what Caleb, you just said. Of Well, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. As an organism continues to evolve, what it was previously uh, in, in hopes of avoiding annihilation, what it was afraid of. Um, as it continues to evolve and to, um, you know, grow in its um, different utilities like technology or even like just different ways of organizing a community, they're going to be less concerned about those more primitive threats mm-hmm. and now more concerned about higher order threats. And I think in the building blocks of the human brain, you start to see that as you start to look at the reptilian the mammalian and the rational brain. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is important. And I like that you pointed to the anthropologists because I think one of the things that we, uh, the three of us decided was, you know, when we're conceptualizing shame and it is, it's a constellatory construct. Like it has so many associations to it. Yeah. So many definitions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the dynamics that's really important is understanding shame across human development yes. anthropologically yes. so across culture across our time. biological development in time yeah uh, and so that's going to probably come back but it's co-noted mm-hmm. or implicitly kind of given to right. us in the structure of this article yes and so to point oh sorry well so one thing and you guys may have mentioned this because i was deep in the article hunting for a specific part of it <laughs> so you guys heard me like scrolling over here um so the the relevance of the cultural component, including issues of things like racism, uh-huh. is very, very present in this discussion because one of the things that they identified as far as the, the function of the behavioral immune system had to do with the in-group and the out-group. Yes. And so we have a discussed response triggered by too many cues of other, too many cues of out Group. Out, out group yeah yeah and that um you know there is social utility to that but it's it's biological utility because yes. when when we were living tribally and in small communities if we kept to ourselves we wouldn't be exposed to the diseases of other tribes mm. and it was biologically smart mm-hmm. um to avoid contact with anybody that looked too different than us or yeah. behaved too yeah. different than us or I've... dressed too differently from yeah. us, which, which what is you're, fascinating. What you're talking about is disgust sensitivity. Yes. As a sensitivity to that felt sense mm-hmm. of, um, okay, yeah. impending potential of contagion mm-hmm. based on your outgroup. That's right. Yeah. That's um, right. And so I, it doesn't even have to be a signal of actual disease. It's a signal of otherness that makes it more likely that you would carry an infection that I... Is anybody else thinking about COVID right now? No, but we should be. <laughs> I was thinking about Philip Brownberg and well, yeah. not me, but yeah, how about well, yes. sneeze shaming? But but <laughs> even like let's say like for me, this is a very real thing. My partner and I both have mothers that are very high risk, and so even though vaccinated, we both wear masks. Right. Everywhere we go. Yeah. Regardless. And yeah. when we see somebody who is not wearing a mask, yeah. it's like I need to actually like keep distance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't feel safe. No. Yeah. For good reason, mm-hmm. behavioral mm-hmm. immune system exactly yes. right. right, and there. our yes. disease sensitivity, mm-hmm. which makes has this been article incredibly relevant, so timely, so yeah. timely. But has my our disease sensitivity has been heightened because mm-hmm. of our environmental threat mm-hmm. from the others? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. shame then 
gets wrapped around that. But oh, I just want to. Yeah. yeah. So anti-mask well, shaming is mm-hmm. very, very relevant. To Biologically this uh, necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your body's the, like, hey, what the. But mm. also the particular the de- denial of the disgust. Yes. As sort of not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not like afraid of this. Yeah. I'm I was just going to say the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. For those that that aren't experiencing that yeah. or who are experiencing instead a sense of. Sorry if you just heard the AC kick on, but I, my it's microphones. Reality. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't want to like be super hot while we were Here, I'll turn the room so, there we go. one down. Thank you. That's much better. Thank you for it leaving the AC better. on. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it is hot outside right now. Um, but, uh, Caleb, can you take back over my mind? Well, no, you were kind of talking. What I think you were going to is the counterphobic stance. Yes. Yes. Uh, to disease, uh, disgust. Yes, sensitivity. That is exactly where I was going. So, in uh, in an organism's fear of a perceived contamination, there are the avoid types of responses, but then there are also the move towards and through mm-hmm. responses. Um, and I see, and I think that that's just a very um, a, a illuminating uh, commentary on what we're seeing. Do we think that we live in a potentially very counterphobic culture? I don't know if you can say culturally but i think that depends on your view of well our and, culture. and under the current circumstances that there is a counterphobic response to covid in some mm-hmm. yeah in some because mm-hmm. i'd also say there's a heightened hyperphobic yeah hyperphobic yeah that's fascinating yeah i feel like every well i'm not gonna say what i was about to say <laughs> Were what you about I was, to bring in politics? Uh, or no, <laughs> no. I was going to bring in procreation. Oh, good. And our, our choices about procreating during this particular span when our genetics are currently being mutated by the oh, yes. social experiment that's happening because epigenetics are real, everyone. Um, anyway, so <laughs> that could be a rabbit trail for another day. So, yes, behavioral immune system. Yeah. Uh, timely in the times of COVID, but also just generally when mm-hmm. we're talking about shame and mm-hmm. its earlier evolutionary structures of right. disgust. Right. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that to me feels very relevant for certain client presentations that have a high comorbidity between, you know, this diagnosis such as ADHD in a child and shame. Yeah. Um, because of the the cultural shaping around our response to the other, to people that present um, different from us or mm. are pa- part of a perceived out group if you're too bi- behaviorally divergent in some ways the biological response that most people are going to have to that is a shaming response born out of this disgust circuitry that we all have um, and when you say shame there I think are you saying a dissociative response maybe but say more about what you mean. Well, a structurally dissociation, a, yes. a structural dissociation. Yeah. So, so the way that I would anticipate to Steele and Vanderhoof. Yeah. 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 Um, so the way that I would anticipate that potentially happening is in the human organism, at least we have a disgust response, right. To, you know, and th- this will be hard to hear for anybody who this is a relevant story to. So I'm really aware of that as I'm saying it. Um, but we have a disgust response to somebody that uh, maybe has a disability, okay? And our body reacts to that, but then we immediately go into a cognitive override process. Neocortical yeah. function, yeah. Trends. Where, you know, we, we tell ourselves that that's not rational. But if we are not um, 
aware of how powerful that behavioral immune system mechanism is in our system, we're still being animated by that, even though we're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would I be disgusted? So instead, we get angry and we have these irrational behavior patterns and affective patterns towards this person. Um, And so I'll be really open and honest. I have this struggle and have to be very conscious of it um, around uh, geriatric populations. So if I get around a large group of people that are very elderly, my body reacts really, really strongly to that. And I can recognize it as a physiological disgust response. And there is no rationale to that whatsoever. But for the listeners, we're not saying those people are disgusting. No, no. Those people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And like that's that's my point is that when when we have this mechanism in our system as evolved humans and not lower primates we can be conscious of how powerful that response is and you see some move i'm sorry Kev. no no go ahead well some i've just move. seen i've seen so you know there are some people that have the internal affective response to that of move close to right and to that would be the counterphobic response well and it, mm, i think the counterphobic response is what you're talking about of the denial oh, yeah okay. that's not because okay. the ignoring the yeah. me's the the people that respond to it as a me uh, move to move towards it with nurture and with um, I'm going to continue to take care of yeah. Yeah. Um, as not just as a I find them disgusting so I'm going to do this or even my body is reacting negatively so I'm going to override it with a right. like with a, a nurture response no yeah. but it is a general emergence of nurture yeah oh I see someone who needs taken care of right I'm right. going to do that well so that would be the entire population of nurses for all of the nurses or people that are married to nurses, God bless you. I know some counterphobic nurses, but yes. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> truly, day in and day out, like they are moving towards things yeah. that most humans would, would move run away, away from. from. Yes. And that is a fascinating yeah. possibility. Yeah. yeah, I know you've got some nurses on your case. That I, have, I do, I, I have, have a bunch. Yes, yeah. and I am perpetually in awe of yeah. what they willingly move towards on a regular basis. In the times yeah. of COVID, my yes. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But I think you illuminate like such an important factor in the therapist being an embodied self in therapy mm-hmm. of you may have that innate disgust response right and there's a wisdom there mm-hmm. if you can integrate that and move through it with care right and bring that into the inner subjective space not saying well man i feel really disgusted yeah my about body that right now my body is reacting i'd probably go you. with yeah, don't yeah, do that. different language and a different <laughs> soft for sure softness for yeah right. the client but but if you integrate that then you can move through it right and what you're saying is if you deny it as a not me yeah you're engaged in an an internal shame structure in your own mind yeah and you bring that into the inner subjective space of therapy and that I mean, that's important for clinicians to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get I back so to the article. I so excited I choked. <laughs> yeah. I saw you quick inhale to speak, and it was like... <laughs> uh, I got real excited. I don't even remember. What about uh, now? Thank you. That's a good compliment. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we were talking about the interrelationship between shame and disgust. Um, for those that... Uh, and we haven't really talked about the definition that the article gives of disgust, but they, Mel said they kind of lean on Darwin. Mm-hmm. And so just to give that language, it's something revolting primarily in relation to the sense of taste as actually perceived or vividly imagined. And they broaden that even uh, just to be talking about um, uh, cross-cultural human emotion 
um, or even just the way uh, we have fear infectious disease or bodily contamination yeah. of any yeah. kind. This, I, I really like kind of this phrase of kind of what we were talking about around that idea of the in-group, out-group. Disgust should encourage individuals to prefer in-group members over out-group members because out-group members pose a greater disease threat. And I think that that feels so relevant, like mm. deeply relevant. Um, and is the neuroarchitectural and biological explanation of so much of our cultural struggles. And that's not to give permission to say, well, I can't help it because my body <laughs> feels that way. No but, way. Yeah, but almost the opposite, yeah. that when we're conscious of the biological mechanisms, um, you know, we don't sleep with every single person that we feel aroused by. Like, it's, it's a very similar concept. When you're aware of your biological processes, you can make cognitive decisions to override or to move around them when we're conscious of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and then to take that to um, sort of the, not the fear of the other, but the the interpretation of the self yeah. what they go on to say is that the way disgust has evolved in their minds potentially into shame mm -hmm. is that once a social transgression has been perpetrated the self is then perceived mm. as a source of contamination Whoa. and that's where shame really sets into the disintegration of mind yes. the fragmentation of the self yes so I feel like there's so much to say around that point. Yeah. Is this where we're going to say it, or do we want to finish talking about how they went about this research and what it looked like before we do a deep dive into that concept? Well, they don't go into it in the article. Yeah, that, and that's in their theoretical orientation. That's kind of how yeah. they're framing and operationally defining shame, disgust, yes. and then how they see the paradigmatic shift from disgust into shame right mm -hmm. and that's where they wanted to then look to see if uh which can maybe shape the impetus into the studies and then what they found and then from there we can yeah we'll come jump back off. to that yeah okay. so in parsing out the relationship between disgust and shame the researchers wanted to set up various experimental methods that could look at can you uh see increased levels in shame with different disease responses is there a correlation to be found between disease and disgust? And so they set up two different studies mm -hmm. to look at that and then controlled for different elements across the two studies, yeah. uh, guilt being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if we want to go into now describing more, yeah. if there's some prefaces you want to give. No, I think um, like the, those are the main prefaces and then... Um, the extrapolation and kind of what we as therapists felt like was really relevant from the points that they, you know, came to in their conclusion, I think is where we can go after mm -hmm. that. Okay. Yeah. So, th and this is two studies. Mm -hmm. um, if we haven't mentioned that already, yes. I don't know. Okay. We have. Mm -hmm. So um, the first study, um, the kind of the framework of it is to investigate whether individual differences in disgust sensitivity and contamination fears were associated with shame propensity and sensitivity. Yes. So to put that in very simple language, if shame emerges from disgust, disgust sensitivity should be positively correlated with shame. Mm -hmm. Yes. That means in increased disgust sensitivity should equal increased shame. Yes. Yeah. And increased shame should also be associated with increased contamination concerns. Mm -hmm. So yes. that, that contamination first fears. Fears and yes. concerns, yeah. They use both language. Yes. Um, so in that first study, those are the two correlations that they were looking at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and um, as any good researcher does, they um, um, corrected for guilt. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Because they want to make sure that 
they're not talking about guilt accidentally. Yeah, and I think they, they corrected for negative affect state as well, didn't they? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, just if anybody is already thinking about this, because I know that I was, <laughs> they're looking at state shame, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. Trait, trait shame, shame yes. which is a very important difference. Can you say what you mean by that for people that don't know what those phrases mean? Well, with any type of self-report, mm-hmm. uh, s- s- like Likert type scale, like one to five rate this, um, state shame is something that we're looking at a lot of the time when it goes to, um, in this situation, in this vignette, let's say that you, um, uh, like publicly flatulated, you farted. Mm. How do you then forever for the rest of my life? I'm going to call it public flatulation, please. That's what some people would refer to. I have a disgust response right now. Well, I mean, and that's like an example of something in this article of what they did, um, you know, rate your shame on that experience. And so they would then rate it, and that is a state shame because that's about something you did. Now, yes. oh, maybe I do reflect on oh, I, I, that was wrong of me to do that, yeah. and I I'm feel going to be rejected because whatever. of it. Yeah. Right, exactly. People so then, like trait me. shame is more so uh, cumulatively, I'm a bad person, right? right. Because not of, associated with a particular action, behavior, etc., but just in general. Yeah, I evaluate myself as worthless. We, yes, yeah. and the research calls that global negative self appraisal. Mm. It's quite a phrase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. Helen Block Lewis right there. Bridger, what, um, just as a quick aside, do you, are you aware of any um, assessments that are. Um, trait? Trait? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, I know that Tosca is state. State. That's my. Mm-hmm. I have experience with that. Yeah. And you have the GASP, which was used in this. Mm-hmm. You have the. Well, every single schemas. one that used in this one was um, state. state. State, yeah. Yeah, and I'd have to do some research. Look at that. I feel I like there there are a lot of in several personality inventories that measure what we would consider more state or trait level shame. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of those are going to be still looking at states because that's how that's the easiest way to know what you're actually evoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is to yeah. say, okay, this is typically associated with greater shame. Yeah. And how experience. easily do you experience that state is mm-hmm. going to be a reflection of. How the, much trait shame you have? Yeah, arguably. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I'm just curious because I I think I haven't run across mm-hmm. a, an actual um, trait shame inventory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one. Um, and I, I wondered know. if it would be more um, of a qualitative orientation. Yes, it is, yeah. and more uh, interviews. Yeah, and yeah, yeah uh, to me that that see how you form information very similar to attachment would be very indicative of well and even yeah and how you respond to questionnaires and surveys Mm -hmm. that's one of the main problems that researchers discuss when talking about researching shame Mm -hmm. is how difficult it is to reliably uh evaluate and measure shame Mm -hmm. and so you have to resort to uh quantitative state shame Mm -hmm. measures Mm -hmm. because trait shame measures are subjective but then there's other research that shows a very very high correlation between trait shame and state shame which makes those measures still relevant. Is that true? Because um, I think they reference something like that in the article. Well, they talk about the various difficulties in measuring shame. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this more later. I don't want us to get bogged down in this because this is the an ongoing conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's fair. And we don't have time. Which is why we're actually talking about this. It's yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. so big, mm-hmm. shame is. Yeah, so. and, the, and the present research went on to do various... Um, pretty high powered um, 
post hoc analyses on uh, the validity of their uh, correlational studies. And that's like after the fact, they went back and checked the validity and reliability of their measurements, um, specifically in um, the second study, uh, or sorry, the first study. So we can talk more about that as we go too. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's jump into participants, measures, methodology. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So participants of study number one, and again, this is if shame emerges from disgust, disgust sensitivity should be positively correlated with shame, and shame should be associated with a broader disease avoidance concern, so contamination concern. So the participants were 195 introductory to psychology students from Virginia Commonwealth University. And this was the same, the participants were the same for both studies, same so we both. won't have yep. to say them for both. Yep. Yeah. Well, they were the same uh, population, Demo. not different the same numbers. numbers. Yeah. 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 But, but different the makeup. demographic info yeah. was the yeah. same. Because mm-hmm. the first study is correlational, mm-hmm. the second study is causal. Causal, mm-hmm. experimental. Which I like that they did both. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. very important. And some yeah. people just point at the outcomes of a correlational study and say, hey, check this Nailed out. It. But as we all heard in undergrad, correlation, correlation does not, not equal causation. causation. And for some reason, our professors used that voice because we both did it. Yeah, you both <laughs> did that. That's interesting. Mine has a uh, slight uh, underbite <laughs> and talks through the teeth. Are you like channeling a specific human right now when that you think be. about that? It <laughs> might be. Who's to say? So then one of the things that we found very interesting, or at least I did, and we kind of talked about it beforehand, is the like unreal amount of inventories they gave to these participants. Yeah, yeah. And there was a little bit of curiosity from all of us on would that have influenced any of the um, results, the fact that they did this huge battery mm-hmm. of inventories without any significant breaks between. Um, that was even more relevant for the second study where they did seven inventories in a row. Yeah, That's a lot of inventories. Yeah. And each inventory had like 30 some questions on it. Yeah. That's a lot of questions. Yeah, so let's just, let's just pop through it. Okay. I'll give it a quick yeah. snapshot. Yeah. So for general disgust sensitivity, they had a disgust say, uh, scale, it's 32 items. Uh, and the average of the 32 items was given for the general disgust sensitivity score. Then you have the three domain disgust scale, which did pathogen, sexual, and moral disgust sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Um, That is how many items? 21 21, items. The disgust propensity and sensitivity scale revised, uh, assessed disgust reactivity. That was a a 16 item item scale. Mm You had a contamination concern scale. Um, that was 10 items. Um, that was the Padua inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have shame and guilt measures, which used the Tosca, <laughs> so which was uh, 15 scenarios. Um, you also have the GASP, guilt and shame proneness scale. That's a 20 item. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's hear, is that it? Yep. That's that, it for That for, was it for study for, number oh, one. No, no. Sorry, no, because uh, they also used the oh, yeah. uh, control the for panis. mood, yeah. the panis, which is uh, 30, uh, yeah, 30 items. Positive and negative affect schedule yeah. is what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, Caleb, I, I have to make a just public declaration of apology both oh. to myself oh. and my doctoral program, <gasps> as well as a specific professor, wow. Dr. Volk. I'm so sorry. I know I had to memorize this for my qualifying exam <laughs> and the paper I wrote for you. And I know I defended my utilization of this measure. And so I'm sorry. 
Caleb, yes, there is a trade shame, um, a trade shame measure that has been found to be uh, internally valid. consistent and psychometrically valid, and it is called the Compass of Shame Scale. Oh, mm. okay. Yeah, okay. and it is specifically looking at the four responses to shame. Fascinating. What are those? Uh, attack self, withdrawal, oh. attack other, and avoidance. Well, that's amazing. And they developed this, the Compass of Shame, because specifically pointing at instances of shame relies on the information processing systems in the brain which in highly shamed individuals or shame-filled individuals is already augmented and so Mm. that is an unreliable source of measurement Mm -hmm. so you need to look at the responses to shame for underlying trait shame Mm. fascinating yes i'm glad you did the aside i needed to and dr volk will forgive you i bet he he won't oh okay that's the thing about him (laughs) Um, and also, he's probably never going to listen to this, so I think we're probably okay. No, probably not. Um, <laughs> but he might. And so I hope he does. Mm-hmm. But You can say, I'm just going through the uh, process of a proximal, um, what is that called? A proximal, where every time you get closer and development. closer. Development. The zones of proximal development. Yeah, we, we were just in a zone, yeah. and you mm-hmm. needed to reference the internet a little bit to help you. We'll record well, just three actually, more That was just my references list. There. Oh, oh well, there you drive. go. You were referencing <laughs> yourself. I was, ha. which is fun. All right, to circle back around the results Sorry. of study number one. That's okay. Um, so the results of study number one were as they expected. The measures of disgust sensitivity and contamination concern were consistently positively correlated with the measures of shame. So no huge surprises here. It's exactly what they thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, That as disgust sensitivity and contamination fear goes up, then so too does shame. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also found that guilt was generally not correlated with the disease avoidant components of disgust when controlling for shame and negative affect. Yep. Yep. So one of the things that we had some conversation about which i think is relevant is their focus on the idea that disgust and shame involves physical and bodily contamination fear rather than symbolic moral contamination and this is kind of one of the areas of the research where there's a lingering question mark Mm -hmm. right and it kind of goes into um how how does this actually function in a human organism but then in groups of human organisms is there a more cultural component a moral component um things like that or is it really just protecting ourselves from bodily contamination so what their research is saying is that it seems very fixated on physical and bodily contamination but there's still a question mark of it could be more than that mm-hmm. they weren't definitive mm-hmm. about that yeah because their oscillation into the self right and to language about the self to me like implies that they're talking beyond what their measures are measuring about shame being more biologically um focused yeah um and and that just seems interesting to me to me and we talk a lot about this in our case conceptualization model that humans are biological mammals yeah and we cannot forget that when discussing our behavior and our internal processing of self that we are concerned with survival and then connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Survival first. Yeah, and connection is often a function of our need for survival. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. That is the most powerful. So shame then will reflect on biological sensitivity to contamination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so study two. Study two. Or study one, did you wanna say more on study one? I feel good about study one. I feel good, I feel great. Just for a review. In case you've gotten that. lost. Caleb has a hand to the side. Uh, of he, he's <laughs> holding like it up paused. saying, wait, just for a review. 
because uh, I know I've been in, listening to podcasts and sometimes I get caught in the lull and I'm mm-hmm. driving. And yeah. so I just, I, I appreciate when a, a, a host says, hey, let's just, I'll sum this up Somebody, for you. Okay, okay. Study one, caught. discuss sensitivity and contamination concern were consistently positively correlated with shame propensity, even after controlling for guilt and negative affect. Mm-hmm. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Boom. In a nutshell. There's study one. Yeah. And study number two was the causal study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, study number two, the, the big if question, right. was if shame is an emotional experience that emerges from feeling disgusted with the self, inducing disgust should trigger shame. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so inducing disgust is a very interesting idea. How do you induce disgust? Because if we go yeah. back to the way that Darwin uh, originally conceptualized it, um, you would have to do something with a smell or a sense of taste, mm-hmm. um, whether it be through perception or vivid imagery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how did these researchers go about mm-hmm. inducing or yeah. triggering disgust? Mm-hmm. They were given a mood induction um, lexical dis- um, decision task. Yes. Which so, is like a primer. Yeah. 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 Basically it's priming the affect states. Yeah. So I, I want to clarify really quick. They use the same scales as the first one yep. with the addition before mm-hmm. taking the scales of this, uh, discussed measure. And they, they intentionally hid the point of that process from the participants. Yes. So the participants were not aware that they were being exposed to subliminal cueing to induce the affect state of disgust in their body yes Mm -hmm. yeah and what that looked like is they had a uh, computer that was putting up uh, these series of letters and then uh, that didn't make any sense yeah Uh, they were just random letters in order and then they would show a sense word word, a Mm -hmm. real word that was associated with um, the uh, a neutral word a uh, Caleb Sorry, neutral state, state, negative state, state and, and a disgust. disgust state. Yes. Yeah. So basically, if you're imagining a participant doing this, they were told you're going to play a word game. Right. And whenever a word, an actual word pops up on the screen, you're going to indicate, oh, that's an actual word. Right. But then all of the nonsensical letter combinations uh, you indicate as non-word. So participants thought they were just playing a word game to test, you know, response rate and things like that. So they were not aware at all of what was being induced in them. But the, the selected terms, um, when they put people into control groups, one was in a neutral control group, right. one was in uh, the negative affect control group, yeah. and then the other was in the let's induce a disgust response in right. your body group. And so I want you to just imagine yourself being put into one of these three groups. Right. And so the, the neutral would show you random string of letters, yeah. nonsensical, like table. and then it would show you a word like book. Mm-hmm or table Mm -hmm. and you're just seeing words like that pop up over and over and over again and then you would take the disgust measure and then you would take the series of battery for the shame that's right uh and for um the the various other measures Mm -hmm. that they did for negative affect Mm -hmm. and guilt yeah but then for the negative uh words you're looking at a random string of letters that aren't any in any order and then a word like disappointing Mm -hmm. pops up Mm -hmm. useless pops up yeah and you can already feel, I feel it in my body as I mm-hmm. say those words. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel dampening right. in my affect. Yeah. 
Um, and then you're put into discussion measure, all those other things. Yeah, and because for, that's one of the things that they were controlling for was yeah. the, the correlation uh, or the relationship with a negative affect state and whether that uh, produced more shame or yeah. not. I right. wanted to make sure that it wasn't just the um, uh, the color coding or the lens of a negative right. affect. Right. And these are different people in each group. It's yes. not the same people mm-hmm. going that's through right. each group. Yep. That's right. And then in the, uh, in the discuss category... The words would be things like, and get ready to hear. Uh, gross word. Kind of a gross word. Yeah. Disgusting word. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Um, a word would, you know, this random string of letters would pop up, and then a new word, diarrhea. diarrhea. <laughs> random string of letters, new word, urine. Mm-hmm. And then you would start to feel the difference in your body. And then you Nausea. would be. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And then you would be put into your disgust measure. And then all of the battery for there was a little part of me that wondered if I was in the disgust group and all of these words kept popping up. There's going to be a part of me that's like, what the heck are they choosing these words? And you know, diarrhea, urine, nausea, like what the your (laughs) neuroceptive tendency is doing something with yeah yeah. Yeah. Like I'm I'm putting this together, going maybe there's more to this test than they were telling me. That's right. Yeah, this isn't just a lexical uh, decision task. Either that, or the person that put together this game was in a really weird mood. Yeah, what's going on with you guys? But the point is, is that they didn't know. And uh, so that was one of the ways of controlling. Mm-hmm. Caleb, so, yeah, where are you at? What came out of this? I am uh, somewhat moving on to the results. Yeah, yes. I'm in. Go All for right. it. I, I hoped there. you would. Okay, well, thanks. Um, one of the things, so actually, do you want to, Professor, do you want to give us a little rundown on the um precise sort of statistical analyses that they were using because it gets a little tricky because they go step one step two mm. and we can limit melissa's giving a look so we can limit stink eyes to here. 30 seconds <laughs> okay that's possible. okay 30 seconds on statistical analysis go okay so you have multiple measurements uh for each participant okay so now in order to compare those to the same measurement scores of other participants, you're going to need more than just what was your average score on this measure? What was your average score on this measure? In order to do them all at once, this is what you have to do to look at the relationship between them. You need a very powerful statistical analysis. And they used uh, three separate analyses of variance. And so that's just looking at where did this person fall in relation to the other participants and how did we look at that across the neutral group, the negative group, and the disgust group? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we want to go any deeper than that? No, nope, well, that I'm good. That sounds like a good 30-second yeah, summary. I, I work, feel yeah, great. That, to me, that's the skim yeah. version. I, yeah. I just want skim. I appreciate nice and you light. holding no, back because I know No full fat okay. uh, experience I had statistical skim analysis. because Mel skim was milk. giving me I know, this high. I know. Yeah. You know that I'm counting to 30 in my head. Yeah. The impending shame of if you go. <laughs> you're making seconds. less and less sense here, and you're losing people. And yeah. well, welcome yeah. back. Yeah. Because what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about what they found. Uh, also, sorry, real quick, they looked at the uh, covariates of sex. So they looked at male, yeah. female, which is very, other. very relevant. Very relevant. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, and what they found was that, um, like, the results remain significant even after controlling for sex mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so then everything was uh, reported without sex included as a covariate right right because that didn't make any if anyone wants to talk to me later difference. about multiple regression I w- 
You'll okay. get lots yeah, of that, emails. So that many listeners. comes up in yeah. here. So many listeners are going to email you about multiple Caleb wants to talk about analysis. it. Well, you guys can later. Okay. So the they, results of study number two. Dang it. Discuss sensitivity was a significant predictor of guilt, even after controlling for shame and negative affect, which I think was interesting. And they went on. There was more results. They did go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Negative, negative affect and guilt emerged as significant predictors of shame. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the propensity to feel shame is predicted by increased Disgust. scores and dis, um, nope. Guilt and oh, guilt, negative yes. affect, yes. which is yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, then their their main hypothesis was supported, which was that inducing disgust increased shame for individuals who were sensitive to disgust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was supported. Yeah. Yep. So then, in both studies, what we have is the overall understanding that shame was positively correlated with both disgust sensitivity and contamination concern mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, disgust sensitivity and contamination concern were su- significant predictors of shame even after controlling for guilt and negative affect so it's not just a it's not just a, some muddy water that then has flavors of shame right. because it controlled for the negative affect and mm-hmm. guilt mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah so it was not due to the negative affect um, Okay, so are we ready to talk about the implications of this? Because that's what I'm excited about. I think we are, yeah. I just right. have to say, very. I, mean, I am just very pleased with the statistical analyses. <laughs> I'm glad you are. I am. They did a really good job. <laughs> they did. You don't could, see this. No, it was very thoughtful, the amount of control measures that they put in. And the. I also really appreciated the way that they wrote and walked the reader through yes. um, their thought process yeah. behind the statistical analysis. And that's what Caleb was talking about with step yeah. one, step two, step yes. three. When yes. you're doing multiple regression like that, you're just looking at the ways which piece influences which piece. Yeah. So w- what effect does guilt mm-hmm. and negative mm-hmm. affect have on shame? Mm-hmm. What effect does disgust sensitivity and guilt and negative affect right. have on shame. Right. And in order to look at those individual relationships one at a time, right. you have to use some really complex analyses. Well, and those nuances end up being really Very, relevant yes. for, mm-hmm. for therapeutic work, understanding, you know, not just that these two things tend to happen together, but what is it exactly that is influencing the other factors? That's exactly right. And so rolling right into the conversation that yes, I'm super excited I'm about. Um, is, you know, in their conclusion, what they suggest as an area for further research is around this idea that potentially reducing disgust sensitivity could be a helpful component in psychotherapy to treat any manifestations of shame. shame. So, um, you know, some of the examples they give would be things like eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorders. But as therapists, we know shame is like all over the place, yes. right? Um, shame and fear are everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, people that have those presentations with things like ADHD um, and ASD. And there's huge shame components in many of our diagno- uh, diagnostic um, categories. And so if reducing disgust as sensitivity could help with that component of some of these disorders, it would be amazing yeah. and potentially really impactful to some of the hardest to treat diagnoses that we contend with as therapists. I think when talking about disgust sensitivity, um, you're talking about something that's deeper in the brain mm-hmm. than just our sort of like 
rational version of shame. Right. And so when you're when you're considering what would it look like to psychotherapeutically mm. attempt to reduce yes. someone's sensitivity to disgust, yeah. you're talking about the way their brain is organized That's right. and the way their brain was neurosequentially built over yeah. time. Um, so very, I mean, I think it's beautiful to think about organizing our approaches around trying to desensitize someone's mm-hmm. disgust response, mm-hmm. but it's there for a reason. Right. The person's disgust response is sensitive because of their lived experience and likely because of their epigenetic uh, inheritance. Right. Well, what I think might be um, closer in terms of while we wait for the research to be done and the methods of reducing disgust sensitivity to be created and tested and, you know, validified is not a word <laughs> that's what keeps coming in my head <laughs> validated that's it <laughs> just took me a second guys validified is what i will now call it <laughs> forever in my it was just like it was so willing to come yes. out of my mouth um, we need to validify that <laughs> we really need to validify that so while we're waiting for disgust sensitivity uh therapies to be validified <laughs> and validated both um one thing that i do think is really relevant is the ability to make explicit a very deep down implicit process for our clients that are uh, very sensitive to disgust but more importantly have a heightened shame response so here's what i mean by this i think that there is something really impactful when we can narrate for our clients their own internal processes that has been happening behind the scenes that you know has been pulling their strings that they have no awareness of so mm. for instance the first time that somebody told me oh yeah it's actually a really common thing that bodies react around the geriatric population because they are one of the populations that tend to be the most disease prone yeah, and so most vulnerable yeah the most vulnerable and so that makes sense and it was a medical professional that told me that oh, so um, validating and it, it really was and there was mm-hmm. something in me that relaxed and what it did is it meant that i didn't shame myself about this response because there was a part of me that's like oh god i'm an awful person i don't like old people what the heck right which isn't true like cognitively i know i'm like i'm i'm not prejudiced against this population what is my body doing and in my family a lot of the women are really prone to fainting Mm. (laughs) and this is how the disgust response often manifests for us Uh, my mother has fainted in hospitals oh so many times and she also has fainted anytime somebody tells her a story about a medical procedure Mm. Um, and this is exactly why and so when i understood like oh, okay this is just a biological thing yeah. happened in my body it's normal and now when i feel it start happening i can uh de-shame that and kind of meet myself with compassion go outside get some fresh air and yeah. tell myself that nothing is trying to kill me right now i am okay and then i can be in that situation with a lot more self-compassion and frankly a diminished disgust response because mm. I have cognitive awareness of what that process means in my body and what it doesn't mean. Mm. And I think that because it's been made explicit, my rational brain can now be an ally with my affective self, my sensing self, and they can work together to help me navigate that experience more effectively and not move into a shame response over it. Mm. So I think being able to make explicit for our clients what this very neuroanatomical process is that we all deal with is very helpful in navigating situations that we have to be in, yeah. right? We're, we're going to encounter the other all the time. Yeah. Um, and 
and, and particularly in COVID-related situations and all kinds of different dynamics that are really relevant right now, being able to talk from a science-based neurobiological perspective with our clients is very, very de-shaming. Mm. So I think that is relevant immediately. And then the hope that eventually there will be more research to say, this is how you decrease disgust sensitivity and it really can help to, you know, diminish shame as well. We may get there sometime soon, I hope. Yeah. But in the meantime, this is still really relevant information. Mm. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm curious about the, the inverse of how um, counselors and clinicians and therapists are experiencing the potentiation or the um, uh-huh. neuroceptive sort of prediction of contamination mm. from the client mm-hmm. like if I get too wrapped up in this mm. then I get contaminated and so there's that disgust response mm-hmm. yeah I mean you definitely f- I feel that in consultation with other therapists as they talk about even their fears of the client attaching to them yeah. mm-hmm. they react with this like oh no I can't do that and it's either because of their fear that that would make the client worse right or that I can't handle someone else being that dependent on me. Right. So it is responded what to. What if I uh-huh. become, yeah. yeah. what if I get wrapped up in right. the same thing? This is gonna hurt me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, what if I catch? So are you guys saying that you think that implicitly and affectively therapists may be dealing with a disgust response towards some client presentations and that manifests as fear of attachment, fear of creating dependency, et cetera. I think that's a really interesting yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. 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 And that certainly wouldn't be universal, but it could be one thing to kind of check in with yourself about. Yeah. Mm. Cause I'm, I'm curious because again, we, we went back to how they, um, interpret shame as a turning away of the body to avoid yeah. and mm. disgust uh, as pushing away in an attempt to protect or guard yes. Yes. the self, yes. your self. So, and, and that, because it is so, um, to some degree, like, um, implicit and deep in the brain structures, it, its associations are loose and therefore, um, there's a lot of potential misreadings or reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Reactiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but I've had moments where I have in a sort of like unconscious shame response avoided topics. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then I have objectified the client as a guard yes. for myself. Maybe mm. you've heard the phrase, they're a treatment resistant mm-hmm. client. Mm-hmm. That is to me an objectification that is a sort of disgustful guarding. Right. Well, and, it, and for many, you're using a widely accepted um, kind of qualifier for why you're not going in a certain treatment direction Narrative, yeah. that then still maintains your invol- your inclusion into the community. So I think a really relevant point is that most of us will not actually embody a felt sense of disgust towards our clients in those situations. What we are more likely to feel is a felt sense of shame. And as this article is pointing out, one is the precursor to the other. Okay, so Caleb just threw something in. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, luckily, it was a soft thing, so it made no yeah, noise. No, he's yeah. <laughs> because you're excited. W- w- one of the things we talked about before is uh, Bridger and I both went on this like deep dive because 
they talk about disgust as a primary emotion. Right. Yes, right. which and is very strong language. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we took our deep dive into our uh, Ponksepian mm-hmm. uh, vows. Yes, and went and read some Ponksep, <laughs> yes. and we. And it's so funny that, and I think just this attests to the Ponksepian vows, uh, which is an informal process. Though I'm an advocate for its formalization. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, um, I will oversee that process for yes, you. Yes, yeah, very please. good. We will place our right hands on affective neuroscience copyright 1998. Yes, that's right. That's and we right. will swear. So for but, most of the people listening that have no idea what you're talking about, you are referring to the affective neurobiologist named Yak Ponsep. Yeah. Yes. Who has the seven, he's also known as the rat tickler yeah. um, by Pop Psych. Yep. Um, he has the seven affective circuits, yeah. which is um, sort of talking every... reptilian brain yeah, here. You're yeah. talking... Um, sort of transgenerational transneurobiological um and ancestral um circuits of affect that guide and direct behavioral yeah um, for all mammals well for for all any creatures yeah yeah lots of (laughs) creatures even uh, fruit flies yes so so what's really interesting is you said you probably wouldn't have the um conscious visceral experience Mm -hmm. of disgust Mm -hmm. so one of the um one of the things is there are authors who are suggesting that disgust is a primary emotion. Which means that you would. That you would. But but you wouldn't have the conscious interpretation. Well, I think we... Hold on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so what Pongsep was saying is there is not sufficient evidence that you can... Um, you can engage cognitively the, evoke cognitively evoke the deep visceral experience of disgust simply by thinking about things. Yeah, you have you have the symbolic representation in your mind of what disgust feels like in your body, and but you don't have the visceral activation that you do with the other seven circuits. Yes. What mm. what we were talking about is that the potential for disgust and shame is an entangling of certain circuits. Okay. And, okay, and in the circumstance okay. you're talking this is about, where I, okay. I think you would as a therapist yes. engage visceral felt senses of fear, potentially panic, panic. rage, um, rage, potentially rage. rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Isolation. I think often I feel a deep, uh, like if I go from panic and seeking Yeah, where I'm going to oh, try to seek an answer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or a way out. Yeah, a way out. Yeah, I, something. I want to. I'm. This is not good territory. Yeah. So you guys are saying that disgust is not actually a primary emotion, according to Punksep. Yeah, and we're standing on the shoulders of Punksep. Yeah, yeah. Yes. very Which much. Which I'm quite comfortable. Which Theresian showed. This me. is 2020, yeah. and so there. I think I would like to see somebody use Punksepian uh, neuroscientific anatomy to then disagree with Theresian right. Shook. Uh, if that's where we still want to go, that this is not a primary emotion. And so looking at it from this lens, we need to have greater nuance here. But it is a secondary process right. of inhibition yes. and further activation of behaviors based on these more primal affective circuits of fear, rage, panic. At, as they, It's got to be rage. Like the disgust response evokes very, very visceral rage for so many people. Like, if you think about somebody doing something disgusting in front of you, so many people, your primary movement after that is going to be to be angry at them, to move against them in a fight fashion. I would be careful, though, because you can't say it's all rage. No. Otherwise, I, it I would agree. just be rage. 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 But, I, but what I'm saying is I think, you know, that entanglement, and I'm curious if maybe that is not always consistent for every person, that yeah, it is an me, entanglement with different flavors. Oh, 
for sure. Yes. And definitely. I don't think for me it is a I don't think for me it is at all um a rage response when I see somebody do something disgusting. Now if it's if I notice uh intention behind it. Right. Right. Uh, in that they are like if somebody spit on your foot intentionally, you intentionally, would move into for sure, rage because yes. I believe that it's. I would definitely have a lot of seeking um, going on because I'm like, what the like, <laughs> what's going on? Here? Please explain yourself. Yeah, yeah. and then based yeah. on that response, I would have a different affective experience. Mm-hmm. But if it was, you know, um, somebody like right so it has to do with the interpretation because if we interpret it as a rude behavior rather yeah. than an accidental behavior but that interpretation is more of a secondary to tertiary process which than a primary. there's which this is what punks up is saying right here is that disgust is not a primary emotion because it relies on interpretation. a a, a environmental stimuli yeah. an activation of it a processing through the primary circuits, right. then you experience disgust, and then it's subject to higher order right. uh, tertiary processes within the neocortex, yeah, within the higher brain functions. Yeah, and then our behavior comes out of that interpretation. That, Correct. That makes yeah. which, a lot of sense. Which now, okay, for, there, there's that. But that still doesn't mean that we lose the beauty of this article no. in illuminating the potential that shame is a d- disease-avoidant tactic yes well and it also illuminates why is there a clear relationship between shame and anger right because if we if attack self attack that's right yeah that's right the the initial entanglement of whatever is producing the disgust response in a particular organism likely mediates what their strategy is when they are feeling shame okay well that's where that's where the compass of shame scale is so important to talk about because of uh, and this is Nathanson's 1992, uh, the four, um, uh, the four shame coping styles, uh, are attack self. And I want to process mm-hmm. this. Let's just do a brief, uh, Punksepian analysis mm-hmm. of the strategies, these shame responses, quote unquote, outlined by Nathanson. So by Punksepian analysis, you mean let's hypothesizing what are the potential affective entanglements that are occurring yeah. here? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Attack self, withdrawal, attack other and avoidance. Okay, same again. Attack self, withdrawal, attack other, and avoidance. We see, and these are discrete, uh, discreetly recognizable responses in that they don't overlap. Um, there is clear identification into one of them that, that is your primary response. Right. That's. So- Nathanson's hypothesis. Attack self, attack other, withdrawal, withdrawal. and avoidance. avoidance. Caleb, what are you thinking just after hearing that list? Yeah, well, I think it's... Um, part of my mind wants to go to the reciprocal functions of polyvagal theory in these. Because I think yes. as you get into different nervous system states, like yeah. avoidance... yeah. yeah. Because yeah. well, you've got to talk about attachment, and you've mm-hmm. got to talk about somatic. Yeah. I mean, that's such a big. Yep. Yeah. And and to me, this is where you see shame as this is a huge discussion, and very like integrated and needing a lot of nuances um, uh, around the discussion. So like avoidance to me um, has like a flavor of dorsal parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Withdrawal has um, a sympathetic activation there. Um, Moving into dorsal yeah. potentially. Yeah, attack of the self is really interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. It's like attack of the other 
to me feels sympathetic. Sympathetic, yes. sympathetic and definitely with a dissociative coloring to it yes. because yes. there's uh, attacking self, especially for those of us that um, that is not like if that were to be unexpected, mm. you still see people that attack self in response to that of even mm-hmm. if it's critiquing or, or lashing out at somebody. Yeah. And that is not uh, for many a me state. That's not, right. oh, that wasn't, I don't know why I reacted that way. That wasn't yeah. me. It's something going on underneath the surface, but it's utilizing mobilization strategies of the right. autonomic nervous system. Yeah. Right. Attack self, probably. I, I shouldn't say probably. It's not just talking about self-harming behaviors. Right. No. It's talking about the intrapsychic dynamics yes. in which yeah. you are. There's a reality of it's a shame. part of you that is, yeah, disintegrated from what you consider to be me. Right. Right, and you it attack re- that part. Yeah, it would be that's the yes. rejection that's, of yeah. a part of self. We're talking about yeah. structural dissociation, dissociation and the invasion. And this is where it all comes together. We're talking about yep. the invasion of emotional parts on on, mm. on apparently normal mm-hmm. parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, so then, okay. So take polyvagal theory, and overlay that onto Poncep's affective circuits. Yeah. And I think with some of these, you have the um, almost I wouldn't say like complete disintegration, but in the presentation of bodily activation, yeah, you would have such a um, a minimizing of some of these circuits that something like um, withdrawal, like, well, I, I think it has like a a, a grief and a seeking. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Good catch. But it, like, the others are so disintegrated uh-huh. that um, and inhibited. That would be like. Pongsup's language. Yes, that's right. The, the firing associations mm-hmm. are inhibited through the neural uh, neuronal activity, and so then you have this kind of up-down right activation into the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and to me, this is where you, we have to look at neurosequentiality and uh, attachment and neurodevelopment more than just identifying what does the various attachment styles uh, do when talking about shame. I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care that secure attachment buffers against shame. Like, some people stop there, that this is just a correlational study because it's difficult to look at causal explanations within attachment histories because you need very long longitudinal high inspection rate, uh, high inspection frequency rates uh, that are just very expensive, frankly. Mm -hmm. So these studies that are coming out saying there's a correlation between insecure attachment and shame that yeah. to me that's just nothing well i think it's saying a, nothing yeah i think a more nuanced and interesting concept is that our habitual self-appraisal the way that we do self-appraisal is always going to be mediated by our attachment experience and that was what we said last week bound yes. to feel bad about that's oneself. right why that's would you right. say, yeah and because because that self-appraisal system is our internalized attachment uh, mm-hmm. You know, whatever we experienced in that primary attachment relationship, we then internalize and that becomes our system of self-appraisal, which means then that that is um, absolutely creating the way that our neuroarchitecture is put together. Yes. So those primary affective circuits, the Ponksepian circuits, if we have a self-appraisal system that has been very, very shaped to include um, shame-based self-appraisals, mm-hmm. then I am going to, for the rest of my life, move into that as a, a reaction pattern yeah. um, that's incredibly hard when to When anything undo. goes wrong or we yes, think anything's going wrong or whatever. So so whatever that safe self-appraisal system was that I inherited from my attachment experiences, if I was taught to move into attack self, mm-hmm. 
then that's what I'm going to do. If I was taught and to And you mean taught other, not just by attachment figures, but by your lived experience. By, yes. Yeah, with my, those The environmental figures. teaching yeah, of my right. relationships, of my observations of others, of what was said to me, of what was said around me, yes. all of it. The soup that I lived in that's right. when I was growing up, whatever the flavor of that soup was, whether it was withdrawal, avoidance, um, you attack know, all self, of the, attack other, yes, whatever yeah, it is. Then that is going to be the, the strategy that I utilize when those affective circuits are turned on. And so it's the the mediation of, okay, affective circuitry gets turned on in this particular fashion, but then my attachment experience and my personal neurodevelopment is going to create the specific expression that comes out of that, that is those four different versions of shame. Shame response. Shame response. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And and so in that way, shame is, to to put shame in like a non-binary category and not to split the brain up too much. Shame is as much the neurobiological experience of dissociation in the core parts of the mm-hmm. brain as much as it is the no. the pro symptom beliefs that are autobiographical yes. that perpetuate yeah, the ongoing generated firing. by the neocortical story. Yes, yeah. that happen in the higher regions of the brain. So I don't, cortex. I don't know that even we even want to touch this today, but at some point we really do need to talk about the ACC, the anterior cingulate Well, I was cortex. just going. It's funny that you bring that up. Okay. So, but just wait, by way of grand summary, for me, of what relationship the ACC, the um, anterior cingulate yeah, cortex. cortex and the gyri, which we can, I need people here to see things because like, <laughs> it's need, difficult for me to say. We need images. Go you know, the Google it. Yeah. Go it Google it, you right guys. Because it sits right on top of yeah. that. Yeah. yeah it's, it, like, it literally like sits right on top of the corpus callosum. Yeah. Anterior cingulate cortex and yeah. antingular, or, sorry, anterior cingulate gyri yeah. are very important when we're talking about responding to uh, lower brain stimulation and how we fit into our concept of self and our concept of other. And and the way that we process emotion, like the felt affective state yeah, of emotion. And the way we respond to it. Yes. So this is so important that we actually have two uh, evaluative processes going on, one that is up into the brain mm-hmm. and one that is down mm-hmm. back through the body. Mm-hmm. So those pass through those, those areas yes. twice. We're getting up through the brain, which is here's what we made sense of it in the primary circuitry and into the secondary process, and then back down from the tertiary through the secondary into the primary, back out to the body. Well, and that would happen over and over again. It is milliseconds. Yeah, so saying that, you know, it goes up and then it comes down is, yeah, it does, but then it does it again and again and again. So fast. Yeah, and it's lightning speed, particularly in those regions of the brain, the speed of communication in those synapses is, you know, fast. the fastest thing that happens in our body probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and given certain um, activation patterns mm-hmm. of your nervous system and how you're evaluating your yeah. environment, that that up down, there's almost a split at mm-hmm. times in the midbrain in which the sort of like the higher brain regions mm-hmm. are kind of doing their own cyclical loops yes. while the body isn't worrying about the narrative it's worrying about the behavioral activation That's right. and then eventually they connect in such a way where maybe. the narrating self <laughs> maybe yeah. well the narrating self is going to insulate right the behaving self yeah well and so one of the things that i'm super curious about and maybe you guys know about research but i have yet to run into it is looking at um, structural dissociation and the experience of dissociation functionally in the human brain and the ACC because 
there are so many you know diagnoses um, from a DSM perspective that we have that we have basic evidence that says the ACC is really really important in the function we, we're not really clear on why we're not really clear on in what way but we, we can just, just tell yeah we can tell that you know in those with OCD there's uh, their ACC is abnormal right it's right. it's you know too big too small um, etc and so it is one of those parts of our brain that is clearly a mediator between our mammalian brain and our neocortex. And so that that part of us is translating our felt experience as a mammal to our rational experience as a human being all the time, back and mm -hmm. forth, back and forth. And so when we have a diagnosis that clearly there is a disintegration of mind, I would just go right out on a limb right now and say that disintegration of mind likely happens in the ACC. Uh, well, it happens in the, and this is what my doctoral, uh, my first year was based on. It happens in the theory of mind structures, which is a series of structures in mm -hmm. the brain, the ACC being one of them. Yes. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad we agree. Uh -huh. <laughs> Caleb, what are you looking around for? Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Cool. Nice. Cool. Um, Keys of threat. Nice. No, no. no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I was just, Tell you later. Mel got me very into... Sorry, I spun us out on the um, ACC. Dissociation and the ACC. Yeah, dissociation Man, I, I really ACC. do want to know. And, and, well, and what I'm kind of curious about is what systems of processing are happening? Because you hear a lot about um, the uh, PGA. Yep. Um, yep. And, and then you also hear a lot about the hippocampus and the amygdala. Yeah, can yes. you say what so, the PGA is? Uh, Periaqueductal peri gray aqueductal area gray area yeah and yes. the pga is relevant that's why i say pga all kinds of mental health concerns that we talk about uh, regularly. every single one yeah yeah <laughs> periaqueductal gray uh-huh man you say it so fluently i just say uh yeah that pga and, and you guys couldn't see it but bridger winked when he said it yeah, yeah. So, oh i, I got, got it cues of, cues of safety i'm an only child so i said a lot of words by myself <laughs> growing up my mom said read a dictionary, and so I did. Uh -huh, and you had to sound it out phonetically. Periaqueductal gray. gray. Uh -huh. Go, I go practice thinking, that in the mirror, guys. I remember thinking uh, aqueduct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. how I got it. Periaqueductal gray. Yes. Aqueduct. Dismissive youngest. So then I just found a path of least resistance. And, and call it the PGA. PGA. <laughs> oh, thank God. There's, a, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's an acronym. We're therapists. There's acronyms okay, for sorry. everything. Yeah. Well, I'm, yes. just, I'm just interested in, in what systems are flowing through um those areas of the brain as right. you're transitioning from the afferent to efferent yeah 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 and uh -huh. those systems and how how because you're what you're talking about is some some inhibition oh absolutely in the brain absolutely and which is neurosequentially patterned uh by the millisecond yes so yeah based on your neuroception yeah. of yeah. the environment so okay. Well, I have a really good summary thought to wrap this up, okay. but it's going to take us right out to the end. So does anybody <laughs> feel the need to say anything before I just want to encourage the listeners. You guys are troopers. If oh, you're wow. with us still this far, <laughs> um, this no year. shame if you had thoughts of turning it off because we're just talking. But we are making a lot of sense to each other, yeah. and that's part of doing research. We that's said this right. at the end of the last episode, and I'm probably going to say it over and over again. This is part of doing research. Yeah. We wanted to move past just the words on the page and into what else do you guys know? Mm -hmm. What else are you curious about? We're <gasps> the, see that word curious. Curious, hundred percent. Like, I'm super when you curious go back to about the first, that ACC. When you, yeah, when you go back <laughs> to the first episode, uh, what we wanted from this. Yeah. One of the things that was like so indicative of our desire was. Uh, uh, fostering a sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we're kind of going off on these sort of like 
rocket intersubjective experiences of okay so this is how all these things connect and and i hope the listeners both um tracking but also taking this and saying where do i see this like with my clients on a day-to-day basis that's right because which is where i want to go and and how i want to take us take us out you had caleb and i give our little yeah yeah commentaries and then you just light it up so here's the deal what you have been listening to for the last hour and some bits and including all of the other episodes 22 minutes 22 an hour and 22 minutes wow you guys are troopers so at beyond healing our primary objective is to stand in the gap between a lot of the research that is traditionally pretty hard to connect with for therapists and the therapists that are living it out day after day in seats with clients. That gap is a wide one and we are very, very conscious. And so our very embodied decision is to pendulate between going to one far extreme and the other far extreme and then traversing that uh, the that whole spectrum in between we find what we believe is incredibly relevant and important for the average therapist um, but in order to do that we do pendulate between the very very practical and the very very almost uh, scientifically esoteric <laughs> which is kind of what tonight has been to some degree. yeah um, but what happens in the midst of that is you guys just listen to one of the conversations that then translates into very uh, practical trainings for therapists absolutely um, because we believe that to be an effective therapist we have to be treating our patients from the perspective of understanding what it means to be a human organism we are not just prefrontal cortices on sticks. This is one of our phrases that we say a lot. We are a full human organism. And that includes understanding the basics of what's going on in the brainstem. What does it mean to have a big old mammalian brain? Mm-hmm. And all of those things. And so at Beyond Healing, one of our primary objectives is to do that translation for you guys. And tonight, you heard us going to one end of the extreme. But what comes out of this um, is our case conceptualization model. That's and right. we teach therapists how to um, take the the high level information that comes out of these really deep dive conversations and say, here's the bits that are the most relevant. So if you find yourself drawn to working that way and understanding your clients from a very neuroanatomical and neurobiological perspective so that we can really tailor make our interactions with our clients to get at that core understanding of what it means to be human, then come and take our training because that is our favorite thing to do ever, is to teach therapists not how to talk about the anterior cingulate cortex. You don't have to do that. <laughs> it could be cool, though. It could be really cool, and if you want to talk about that, we will, really willingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the training, uh, SIP1 is um, our three-day training on the basics of uh, case conceptualization through this lens, through um, the somatic integration and processing lens, uh, lenses, to be accurate. And then we also have SIP2, where we do an even deeper dive into affective neurobiology. More stuff of like what this was. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and we are right smack in the middle of really identifying what we believe are the core concepts of SIP2. Um, and so this conversation is relevant for the creation of that training as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and, and the training isn't, I, I just want to be clear, it's not a disembodied experience not in which all. you're watching someone talk about something. Um and and then you're just supposed to think differently, right? <laughs> right. Because Not at we all. also have consultation, yes, which is yeah. 
it's an very ongoing interaction mm-hmm. of yeah. us helping you to mm-hmm. engage this material in yeah. a way that's like you have something to offer. Yes. You engage right. in an intersubjective way every day with your clients. So let's let's do what we do kind of on podcasts. Right. But let's be very specific about conceptualizing clients and do it together. Right. Well, and I love that you pointed that out, Caleb, because it's also about understanding ourselves as a therapist as an organism Mm -hmm. and how that enters the the therapy room and how it influences the whole process. Yes. And, you know, we interact with each other that way. We do therapy that way. And I'm a somatic practitioner, which means my clients, you know, maybe get a little bit of psychoeducation about all of this. But what they feel is that they're feeling something different in the Mm -hmm. way that we work. And it's because we're working from an organismic perspective and not a rational brain perspective. And we get much better results because of that. Yeah. yeah. So if you're interested in hanging out with us for a few days and talking about how all of this translates to the practicalities of doing therapy, um, you can go to our website, beyondhealingcenter.com, and look at the somatic integration and processing training. Um, we have SIP1 that uh, is available right now. And in the next several months, we'll be posting dates for SIP2. Yeah. So and we're just planning to be now doing these perpetually all the time. Yeah. We're about ready to do our fifth. Yeah. SIP training, which seems crazy this LOL. year. <laughs> um, yeah, so that it's uh, grown a lot faster than we anticipated <laughs> uh, because it's really based on the science. So anyway, you guys come and join us for that training. Thanks so much for hanging in there as we uh, investigated all kinds of really big words tonight. Yes. Thanks so much. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.